My name is John Dalton. It is June 9th, 2011. I'm here with Gary Shandling to do the interview for the Archive of American Television in Los Angeles, California. Then we never see him again, right? Gary, the first thing I'd like to do today That's is... That's how you're starting? To, yeah. Wow. Is <laughs> <laughs> to take a few minutes. They don't know that right before but you started rolling, I said, just be yourself. And then I let you get one word out and I go, well... <laughs> That's how you're going to be? That's your choice for my, my very special... Uh, what is it that I'm doing? That's the choice for everybody. Okay. That's what we do with everybody. Well, that makes me feel special. <laughs> We're going to take a few minutes just to get some information about your early years and influences. Um, sure. What was your name at birth? <clears throat> well, I, I don't know exactly what you mean because no one called me by my name at birth. What was on your birth certificate? Oh, only Donald Trump knows what's on my birth certificate. <laughs> it says, Gary, uh, two R's, Emmanuel Shandling. Um, and then under sex, it says, see long form. Where were you born? Well, again, that's personal. Uh, unless you mean the city or something? The city of your birth, Tucson. Yes. Tucson, and, Arizona. And did you grow up in Tucson? Grew up in Tucson. Went to the University of Arizona and then uh, moved when I was in 22, 23, something like that. To what LA. was your uh, father's name? Irving Shandling. And what did he do for work? Printer. He, he owned a big, uh, my dad owned a big printing company, lithography company. He had like three presses and he did all the books for the University of Arizona and uh, and uh, things like that. Sort of a noted uh, printer within the printing industry, which is eventually going to be obsolete, I suppose, but uh, he's passed away, so he's not missing anything. What is your mother's name? Uh, my mother's name uh, was Muriel, uh, and the same last name. And what did she do? She owned a pet shop. And she had her name, uh, my mother was uh, a little um, special, a little loopy, and uh, she had her name above the pet shop, so it was the Animal Fair Pet Shop in a strip mall in Tucson, but it said Muriel Shandling's Animal Fair, like the name above the title of the movie, If You're a Big Star. <laughs> and you don't, you don't, if you think about it, you normally don't see the person's name who's the owner above the name of the store you're going into. Except for Ralph's. Were they funny? Which? But your parents, your, your mom and oh. dad. Oh. Uh, 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 <clears throat> my mom was humorous in a way that was unintended, and my father had a kind of a dry wit, but um, uh, not overtly funny, really. Were uh, there other traits that you inherited from them that you can recognize? A concern for no reason. I would say I inherited that trait. Uh, a, a kind of uh, uh, desperate uh, concern for what others might think. But uh, I think that uh, I've uh, 
worked at uh, stopping that cycle this, this go-around with some self-awareness, hopefully. What do you think? I think uh, <laughs> that seems to be working so far, yeah. Right. Uh, did you have siblings? I had a brother who died when I was uh, 10. He was 13. He had cystic fibrosis, which is a lung uh, disease. So we, uh, while I was born in Chicago, we moved to Tucson because it was a dry climate, dry heat, unlike the Miami heat. I always thought the Phoenix team should have been called the dry heat, but they chose the Suns, I guess. What did you want to be when you grew up? At that time. Well, you know, looking back on it, it, it's, it, it always uh, fascinates me, to be honest. It fascinates to, to uh, unimportant a word. I find it even bigger than that. <laughs> but it seems like, uh, as a young boy of 12 or something, I would say I want to be a veterinarian or a comedian. And uh, that makes no sense growing up in Tucson, Arizona, nothing of show business around me. No, you know, I wasn't in theater, wasn't in the arts. Uh, but I listened to comedians, and I really didn't think that I could be a comedian. It really wasn't, uh, that wasn't a reality. I find it interesting that I said that. Perhaps the subconscious uh, does know more, as uh, my analyst says. But what does he know? Who knows what he's really thinking? What uh, activities interested you when you were growing up? Uh, well, we were just joking about this because of uh, Twitter. Is it, uh, I actually was a, a kind of, uh, I would say half nerd because I also played uh, baseball and all the sports and football and basketball and, and things like that. But then I had a ham radio set when I was 13 and I would sit in my room and talk to people all around the world. So I think I was just ahead of my time because that's what Twitter basically is. And so uh, I find it comfortable to sit there, and I use it mostly like the ham radio set. So yeah. you were 13 when you started ham radio? Yeah, so it gave me a great sense of geography and space and made me question early what the relationships were with people uh, all over the world. There was a sense of oneness there because uh, I would talk to them every day. But I don't find that in interviews. Kidding. <laughs> Kidding. What uh, what were your favorite TV shows when you were growing up? Oh, I don't know if I for sure recall. I remember sort of being uh, wanting to stay up late to watch Steve Allen and Jack Parr and all those uh, sort of groundbreaking early talk shows. Uh, otherwise, sports. Uh, I don't know. Probably some sitcoms that were around. Uh, they don't leave me with a sort of staggering memory. I, I would I would say the the. For some reason, I, I was aware, as I, I find all comedians that I know say the same thing, I was somehow aware of comedians uh, and would get their albums like George Carlin uh, and I saw Woody Allen the first time, which we'll probably work our way around to in this. Uh, and I would watch The Tonight Show or Ed Sullivan or something and see comedians, and I was fascinated with it in a way that I was sort of unaware of uh, because I was shy, as most uh, actually are. And uh, uh, one day in about eighth grade, uh, seventh or eighth or ninth grade, I got up in front of class and did a Mel Brooks piece from one of his albums. And to me, it's still astonishing that I would do that. I wouldn't do that now. I couldn't go to a seventh grade class now and perform. 
<laughs> for fear still that I would get beaten up after the class. Did you find that you were uh, sort of more interested in what Jack Parr was doing or what a George Carlin was doing? Were you more interested yeah. in the hosting aspect or sort of the stand-up com comedy yeah. aspect? But, uh, that, that, that's a great question because it gets into the acting part versus the sense of self and where, where you're coming from and your own observations and feelings. Uh, and I would say I probably didn't have that sorted out then. Uh, comedy in general was an interest. And, uh, you know, I would actually say, as I'm hearing me say that, which uh, happens frequently, I um, say I'm almost the same today. While I can have a masterful, masterful hand in a script, and a, 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 a sometimes an awful hand in a script, uh, I also can just write a joke. And while I have a good sense of story, I can um, sometimes, uh, I could host a, and did guest host the, the Tonight Show. So I think that, that that sort of dichotomy of point of view has always existed within me. I'm seeing this interview from both perspectives. Sorry, sorry you have to go through this. So uh, if, if Parr was interviewing a politician, maybe you weren't as interested as you were if he was interviewing Bill Cosby. That's probably right. And in hindsight, there, you know, I still get these old DVDs from um, wherever they're available. And I look at Parr, and still the amazing thing about Parr is uh, when he is talking to uh, Castro, for one thing, and... Uh, He's Jack Parr. I, uh, it's really astonishing uh, because he's not sliding into just being an interviewer. Um, there was a guy who possessed both an awkward sense of a comedic character and an interviewer. What an interesting thing he had going, really. Very subtle. Some people wouldn't maybe notice it. I agree. Mm -hmm. What uh, what did you study in college? Well, I was an electrical engineering major, seriously, for three years. And uh, one day I walked out of the lab. I was working in this engineering lab uh, designing circuitry. And I walked out to get some water, and I couldn't walk back in. I just literally, like in a movie, just couldn't. I just didn't want to do that. It's sort of been a... And that has been a sort of model of what I have felt every time I've changed directions in my career as I've moved along. It's as you were thinking of, that, did you have an idea of what you did want to do? Well, I'll tell you. Knew? I'll tell you what happened. I, I, and, and, uh, I didn't mean to overlap. I got genuinely excited to tell you. Is uh, <laughs> so uh, at nineteen. I had uh, three years of engineering under my belt, which included introduction to atomic physics and 21 units of math. and A lot of work. Yeah, I mean, I, it was a struggle to maintain a C average. Uh, and um, uh, that's my cell phone ringing, because you probably won't edit that out. And probably years from now, people won't know what that is, so that's why I want to explain that that's a we thing appreciate that, that. that you get uh, cancer from. Yeah. Uh, which, by the way, being a, an, a ham radio operator and an engineering major, I can assure you that radio waves going through your head cause problems. 
we were always told to stay clear of RF energy. So uh, when I see these uh, news stories about cell phones and whether they cause cancer, I'm not saying they cause cancer. I'm saying 30 years ago in college, they said stay away from RF energy. Uh, and um, sugar and fat. <laughs> so uh, there I was, unable to walk back into that class. And I thought, I can't do this the rest of my life. Uh, and I went home, I lived with my parents, and I went into my bedroom, and I don't know what happened, but I sat down and I actually thought, what am I going to do? Okay. <clears throat> and I really had no guidance, and I hadn't read any really books about it. Uh, so there I was <clears throat> thinking about it, and it struck me that well, I like comedy, and I, at that point in high school and so forth, uh, through high school I used to write funny essays, and uh, they, I would read them in class, or the, I would, it was clear that I could write to some degree. So I thought, this is what I like to do, and I seemed to be able to learn. I didn't think that I had any specific talent, or I didn't think that I had any gift, or that I automatically could do something, but I thought I could learn. I had the ability to learn. I was a good student, and I thought, what if I took that ability and applied it to something I liked? Which, of course, now you read about, that's what you're supposed to do. So I just got lucky, and I had the nerve to then say, okay, I'm going to check this comedy thing out and apply myself the way I did with my engineering background, which teaches you such discipline, which is what I always try to impart on... Uh, uh, young comedians starting. The discipline uh, is um, really beyond comprehension. So your engineering background helped. I think the engineering All of background that time spent working on it yeah, paid off. I mean, you couldn't take a minute out to have fun and then pass that exam. I mean, I took one exam in a in a math class taught by an MIT professor where the average score was 10 out of 100. The average score was 10 out of 100. I got 12, and I thought, good, that's it. They were grading on a curve. I thought, good, I got a C. And he came in and he said, I'm failing everybody. And you just had to, it was just uh, working on those equations. Uh, sure, it prepares you for uh, that script can be better, I think. It doesn't add up on this side. There's no getting around it. And uh, then um, I worked with uh, Al Jean, who's a writer. He worked on my first show, and uh, then he worked on The Simpsons. Uh, runs The Simpsons, I think, uh, basically. And he was a math major at Harvard, and so we talked about how kind of uh, a certain knowledge of math can help uh, understanding some formulas of comedy. Uh, and I think probably Stephen Hawking has a great sense of humor uh, when you can get him loosened up. And, and so when you decided to try your hand at comedy, is that what made you move to Los Angeles? So, uh, so somehow, again, looking back, I, I don't understand it myself because I, 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 I see myself as uh, shy. Uh, but I sat down, uh, once I switched to the business college uh, at the University of Arizona, I found it so easy that I had free time even in class. So I started to write monologues like I wanted to test myself and I wrote a George Carlin, a few George Carlin type monologues around 70, 
uh, uh, right when he was going through this new phase of what he was doing. And I worked up the nerve to drive up to a club in Phoenix uh, where he was playing. Uh, and I'd never been in one of those clubs or anything. They didn't exist. There were no comedy clubs. And uh, I managed to find him in the, in the club and uh, asked him if he would read my material. And he said, well, uh, and he was really nice. He said, I, I, I write my own material. And I said, I, I assumed, which I did. And I said, but there's nobody to give me feedback. <laughs> there's nobody. I remember I had a writing professor because I went to graduate school in the writing program. And the professor said, Gary, I, I really don't know how to compare this to, you know, it's very specific. And I remember giving him a Woody Allen, uh, maybe without feathers, maybe it was getting even. Uh, so Carlin said, I'll read your stuff, come back tomorrow night. I went back to the club the next night and he took me backstage and there was my material on, a, on his table. He said, I looked at everything. We sat like you and I are now. He said, I looked at everything. You're very green, but I think you're funny. I think there's something funny on every page and I think you should pursue it. If you're, if you're thinking of pursuing it, I think you should. And that's what gave me the kick to move to LA because he was very sincere. And I was not the, as I say, the confident, arrogant type that thought, oh man, I think I'm funny. I mean, uh, I still think there's a very fine line in that uh, confidence, arrogance. Line. And did, did you keep up with Carlin over the years or did you lose touch and then did he remember having dealt with you early on? Or? No, the, the, the humorous part probably is, is that, that that happened to him probably in every club. In hindsight, that some kid came up to him. However, uh, I think he got an American Comedy Award, which was a thing that was happening about 10 or 12 years ago, and, he, and they asked me to present it to him because everybody in his uh, group there knew that story, even though I hadn't really kept up with George, uh, which is something I regret. And uh, uh, I told that story, and uh, he got up, uh, and I was able to give him this Comedy Award after saying what he meant to me, and the first thing he said is, he says to the audience, I'm sorry uh, for encouraging Gary. <laughs> it's my fault. I'm sorry. And he got such a big laugh. And then uh, when he died, which is, uh, as we sit here, it's about two years ago, uh, I've become very good friends with his daughter and her husband, and uh, that's a great uh, relationship. And that connection has, in the long run, been a great relationship. Uh, more with his family now than when George was here, because he was also a, a, a removed guy. Uh, and it's just a completely, there, there is a gifted, prolific man. Uh, there's a guy who's done I don't know how many HBO specials. And his last one was brilliant. His last one was brilliant and um, yeah, um, uh, 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 there's a couple of them that are uh, pure genius. I, I remember being in this house laughing my ass off by myself and uh, uh, growing. I mean, that's a guy who changed his style. 
change the style and um, good example of changing your style and growing and um, uh, my story about him helping me reflects the kind of uh, upon him the kind of man he was so getting back to the 70s uh, when did you start writing for sitcoms well I I, 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 um, I graduated from the University of Arizona uh, on a f I had a football scholarship actually and uh, I moved out to LA not knowing anybody I mean I had no connection no anything I was scared to death and naive as hell and uh, phew. And I went to some comedy writing class and there was a kid there whose father was a writer and we wrote a script together and somebody saw that and then I wrote a script by myself and somebody saw that who worked on Sanford and Son and said try writing a spec Sanford and Son and I wrote, wrote it and uh, sent it to this guy so I had a direct connection now and uh, I would have been 25 maybe and uh, he called me up and he said, you know, it's not good enough for me to give to the producers of the show. This isn't up to the level of your other spec scripts that I've read. And all my writer friends said, don't rewrite it. They'll never look at it again. And I asked him, what, 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 what's wrong with it? Would you give me the notes? Ted Bergman, who deserves more credit than I could ever repay him for, for helping me as a writer, sat down with me and gave me the notes on that script and I rewrote it and sent it back to him and he called me up and he said this is the best outside script we've seen and uh, then I met with the producers and pitched stories and I wrote uh, ended up writing three three that they shot and while I was there I walked across the hallway to welcome back Cotter and said hey I'm writing on Sanford and Son would you read this spec Cotter and there was this kid kid to me now 25 and uh, they read that and they said, this is great, you should write a Welcome Back Cotter. And I didn't have an agent. And somebody gave me the name of an agent. And um, uh, Norman Kurland, who's a kind of uh, a renowned agent, uh, television agent, and he didn't know who I was. Uh, and I said, uh, well, I'm a, I'm a new writer. And he said, uh-huh. And he was completely bored on the phone. He said, what, what have you written? And I said, well, uh, three Sanford and Sons and a Welcome Back Cotter. And he said, uh-huh, uh-huh. <sighs> well, have you gotten them submitted? I said, no, they, they shot them. He said, wait, I don't understand. You're saying, what are you saying? I'm saying that the, I submitted them and they, they bought them and they shot them. And his entire tone changed. It was like a, like a man coming alive, <laughs> hearing some gigantic like financial offer or something for the, that he had won something. And he said, "You're saying that you you actually you you've written three Sanford and Sons and a Welcome Back Cotter, and they've shot them, and you don't have an agent? Can you be in here at noon?" I was surprised he didn't just pop up right then and there like one of those commercials, you know. And I, and I went in, and he just had me set up for meetings all over town, and that, that began my writing career. Do you remember anything about that first Sanford and Son script and what it was about and when you first saw it air? And is there any memory of that being exciting for you? Or <clears throat> uh, Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's very odd, and that would have been in the, uh, a top ten show at the time. Mm -hmm. 
It might have been a top five show at mm -hmm. the time. So it was weird because, uh, uh, I mean, I didn't watch those a lot of those sitcoms, so I had to watch it to, to write it. Uh, and I couldn't get a clear perspective when I saw my name come up written by uh, Gary Shandling because uh, I had just been in Tucson two years ago. Uh, and then about half of it was maybe rewritten, which is a really good percentage. I mean, usually a script is rewritten. Did it bother you at all at the time that you got rewritten? No, somehow, uh, no, because I never had an attitude about that stuff. Uh, uh, I was more happy when I saw stuff that I had written. And usually the story would be intact and some of the, a lot of the jokes, and, uh, I mean, really speaking now, uh, we or I would rewrite a script that comes in uh, a lot. Um, it's very rare when somebody from outside gets it close, uh, and close enough to say, hey, we'd like you to write another one. And so that was more my, uh, my signal that I, I was doing the job. Uh, it's also where I learned uh, what the job really entailed because the producers of that show, uh, they were reading uh, my second script that I submitted and uh, giving me notes, and they said, you know, the, the ending isn't right. And I said, but, I said, but before, you know, other than the ending, is there a lot of stuff? We should, now, do we stop or do we, do we stop now? Is this, is this on... But I, I was saying that, the, so I, I turned in this first, the second script, and they said, well, the ending isn't right. And I said, but, but other than that, I remember looking at them. I said, but other than that, I remember the feeling and everything. I mean, there was, there's some good stuff in there. And they said, yes, but that's your job. And I have always taken that with me. So, you know, when I'm in the position of being the boss and a guy turns in a script or a uh, a writer turns in a script and you go, there's no ending, and they go, well, but what about the rest? I mean, uh, some great stuff in here, but we got to get the end. So, sometimes uh, uh, people can fall into a bad habit of thinking, ah, the staff will rewrite it and find what needs to be found. When, like an engineering major, you've got to really solve the problem. So it was three Sanford and Sons and one Welcome Back, Cotter. Is that right? Yeah. And then um, you did Harvey Corman. The, then I got then I got job offers to write okay. shows. I, uh, so I, then I got job offers to write shows, and then I was writing scripts. And then they wanted me to write a pilot script, and I started writing a pilot, and I became a young hot uh, writer sexually, and then. Uh, I got bored the same way I did in that engineering class. I kind of froze and I looked at my, when the assignments were due and I called up my agent and I said, I don't think I can do this. It was exactly the same turn as not walking back into the lab. And I said, uh, I, I'd gone on stage once at the comedy store on amateur night and uh, maybe got three laughs, but it was enough to hook me and it also made me realize I didn't have any idea what I was doing on stage and it would be a if I didn't start now to learn, I'd never learn. So I was about 27, 
and I just said to my writing agent, I can't, I can't, I can't do, I can't do this. And he said, well, do you, I mean, do you think you can make it as a comic? And I said, I, I don't know, but if I don't try now, I won't know. And you, that shifted me into stand-up. And you were in a, a pretty bad car accident. Yeah. Uh, right about that time, I had a, car, a bad car accident here in L.A. Uh, where I was re really critically hurt and had kind of a death experience that I don't uh, like to talk about except on uh, bigger shows than this. I understand. Yeah. Even though this is like a memorial kind of thing we're doing. It's like a time capsule, graveyard, speaking tomb thing. Do you think that, uh, do you, do you, would you say the accident made you yeah. go into stand-up? Yeah, I think... Would uh, your life be different without the accident? Uh, I wouldn't have a scar that goes from here to there and then from here to there. But... Uh, yeah, the the accident gave me some actual insight into life and its uh, impermanence, and um, that there is something else to it than what meets the eye. That was my actual experience, and so I realized I best try to figure out who I authentically was, and that I could do that uh, through stand up. And that's what attracted you to stand up. That's what attracted me to stand-up is I can't do this because for some reason I don't know quite who I am and I have to find out. So it was a parallel path. It was a true life path and then the professional path really was secondary. Do you remember your first time doing stand-up on television? Oh, no. Because uh, I did a lot of uh, shows uh, I mean, not to diminish them, but what I remember vividly, which is everybody's, I mean, everybody says the same thing, is, is your first Tonight Show. And, and I, uh, it, it just is different than all the other TV shows at the time. And, so all uh, the early ones sort of blend in? All the early the ones blend show. into pre-Tonight Show. Right. And even though, I mean, if I broke them down, they're all special in their own way. But the big change is uh, I always thought they were preparation for The Tonight Show or preparation for continued growth. And um, <clears throat> uh, uh, my first Tonight Show... Well, how were you discovered first? Do you remember? Yeah, you know, I'll tell you the interesting thing about that is that so the, the talent booker for The Tonight Show, uh, Jim McCauley, was in the back of the comedy store uh, watching, and I had this great set at the comedy store to the degree that he actually came up to me and said, uh, that was so good that I have to come back to make sure it wasn't a fluke. I'll never forget that. And he said, I'll come back next Tuesday. And he came back uh, the next week. And, you know, those things, I, I say, are in the hands of God because it's the crowd, it's you, it's like an athlete playing a game. You, you, you don't know what you're going to have that day, what the... And it just connected again. And he said, uh, how's next Tuesday for The Tonight Show? And, uh, you know, that's sort of, in hindsight, everything. I don't, I don't know that I had a goal beyond that professionally, and, to be honest. What, what was your act at that time that the, 
the guy from the Tonight Show was watching. What what was that style? What were you, what kind of humor were you doing? I had just myself broken into a more personal style, talking about uh, uh, my girlfriend just uh, broke up with me because she moved in with another guy, and I said that's where I draw the line, and I I dumped her because I don't I don't need another guy around the house, and that came out of a real breakup, and then it, and then it went on, and I talked about uh, my father and. Uh, uh, my parents and camping and my some actual experiences with the jokes that I write off of those that are very organic and uh, that first night show landed just like it did in the club and um, what do you remember about that night I think everything I think everything and um Um, that night, did you just do the stand-up act, or did you get interviewed by Johnny Carson? Oh, just the stand-up act. Uh, I remember being upset later, like my fifth or sixth time, that Johnny still hadn't asked me over to the desk. And uh, by the time he did ask me over to the desk, I was within weeks of them saying, do you want a guest host? And, and uh, I remember being gassed over to the to the desk, and... Uh, uh, Carrie Fisher had preceded me and was talking about her parents, Debbie Reynolds and Eddie Fisher at the, at the time. And I sat down and I said, Johnny, maybe you know my parents, Irvin Muriel Shandling. And that made him laugh real hard. And I, I thought, that's where he decided to give him a shot because it was very organic. How was it working with Johnny? Uh, you know, as everybody says, it's, it's great. Uh, I mean, it's great. I mean... Um, you want to do well for him. He wants you to do well. Um, you st have to step up your game to be present with him. And uh, he isn't going to take a swipe at you. And uh, a wink of the eye really did mean you're on course. Um, What do you remember about the first night that you guest hosted The Tonight Show? I'd never been on, I'd never hosted anything on TV. At least Letterman, who had done it, was, was the last new guy to do it before me. At least he'd been a weatherman in Indiana. I had never really been on TV, never hosted anything. And I sat down, I, I, I wrote in my journal, well, your only chance is to be at one with The Tonight Show. I mean, it wasn't like I could force anything, so I better be at one, which is a Zen approach. Organic. Organic. And I did my preparation, then I dropped it, and I'm sitting behind the desk, and then I realized my first guest is Joan Embry from the San Diego Zoo, who brings on an elephant into the middle of the stage. And I'm just holding onto that desk like, you know, I'm at sea, and this is my life raft, and at least I've got this that's solid. And now I have to walk into this big, empty space, and uh, I walk over... And I realized uh, the elephant was here, and Joan Embrya from the San Diego Zoo was on the other side of the elephant, and she was making it do tricks. And I was shouting across the elephant, and you can still see it on tape. I, I, I shout for about a minute and a half before I realized I'm on the wrong side of the elephant. And I just make some move to get on the other side. And then I'd written some jokes, and then I was, I'm a good, I'm a good ad libber. I'm, I'm good on my feet, so to say. There I was on my feet. And I said, well, John, what tips do you have for, you know, other elephants that might be watching who want to get into show business? And uh, how come only big animals stampede? 
you ever see a bunch of <laughs> squirrels running it. Like, but big, big animals only go, hey, everybody, let's go together. <laughs> and, uh, so, so what I'm getting is, uh, on, on some level, hosting can't really be learned. You can either do it or not. Would yeah, I think that's that? true. Yeah. I mean, you can always improve. Um, it, would you say that in those in those first few weeks of guest hosting, was there anything that you did learn as you know as, mm -hmm. as it went on? Uh, they had one talk with me. The producers did about. Uh, uh, I had a friend on Martin Mull at the time, and they said you got you started to talk to inside with Martin. Just remember, you're still on TV. Uh, and that's the one note I, I actually remember. Otherwise, to be honest, I remember P Peter LaSalle, uh, who's still with us, God love him, and he's a fantastic man, said to me, uh, I don't understand how you do this. You haven't hosted anything, right? I said, right. He said, I don't understand how you do this. And uh, uh, I understand what he's talking about. What, in your opinion, when you're watching TV, makes a good talk show host? Oh, uh, uh, a, a completely organic uh, person who's not selling anything but listening and talking and is only funny in context of the conversation. Who do you think now is particularly good? I think Jimmy Fallon is on his way to something really big. Interesting. I mean, we can go through all the others, but as the arc goes, I think he's on to something big. I want to talk a little bit about your uh, first Showtime special in 1984. Uh, it was called Alone in Vegas. Yeah. I found a quote uh, from you at the time, uh, which was, my goal isn't uh, to not do anything that isn't true to what I am. I spent years shedding any artificial technique. Uh, the Gary you see on stage is the same as in the living room. I'm not out to become a show business personality. What made you sort of arrive at that so well, early on in your career? Yeah, I think you go back to the uh, auto accident, and uh, when I said I experienced what life was about, I knew there was something more important. Uh, and uh, I still say today, I think I'm just barely professional, you know? Because, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I haven't jumped on anything that has a big uh, mass appeal, really. Uh, um, uh, it's interesting to hear that quote then. It sounds a little self-conscious, uh, but, a, you know, a man who's struggling to be free. But do you remember anything specifically about that first Alone in Vegas special or what, what you were trying to accomplish there? Well, I mean, there was the stand-up, which nobody had really seen for any length of time. So that was a very broad... 25 minutes of stand-up, very broad, Vegas, uh, you know, strong, me really belting it away. Some people have never seen me like that. Um, uh, but then also, I, 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 the other half was the technique where I talked to the camera and took the audience with me. And uh, to me, that was the interesting part of starting to explore something deeper about the medium and playing with it a bit. And it ultimately led really to my first series where I talked to the camera, which is, which is not unique. Uh, Woody Allen did it in his movies, and I was certainly influenced by that. And I was not influenced by George Burns, who was before me, because I was too 
young to remember his show, but in hindsight, he talked to the camera, uh, and Jack Benny may have uh, during his stories, during his sitcom, I, I don't quite remember, but uh, that had been dropped in the, in the day. What, what is it about sort of the deconstruction of these right. showbiz things that right. fascinates you so much? Well, I think it has to do with my interest in deconstructing life, uh, you know, and the idea that life and death are uh, two sides of the same coin. Uh, and I wrote something about the Dalai Lama told me that life and death are two sides of the same coin, and I said, just put it in the meter, man. Are you always on? <laughs> But I think it's a deconstructing life. I think it's exploring life and what it's about. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, you can't walk around in life uh, constantly deconstructing it, but you can on TV because it's, uh, it's, it's a step away from life. Who's Roy London? Roy London's uh, God and his... Mm. I think Roy London taught me uh, everything about art and uh, organic acting, being, writing, uh, more than I ever learned from anybody. Acting teacher, uh, uh, un unspeakable how, uh, how much insight he had, how many people he helped, uh, really understood the core of what human beings deal with and cover and struggle with in their life. Can, can, is there a way you can sort of sum up his philosophy? Or? Before he died, he said, it's all about love. He said, every choice comes from, from trying to connect with love. That's what he said in his dying breaths. Uh, in class, he said, uh, can you bring your vision of life and what you want life to be and the world to be into your work? even as an actor. In other words, much bigger than what the dialogue would be. Do you have the courage to discover something new about yourself while the camera's rolling and absorb what that really means? How willing are you to, in that scene, actually discover something new about yourself that would normally be in private? And that's uh, what great actors do, I think. Uh, I, I can't say how well or not I do that. It's something I just uh, try my best at. Was it, was it London that kind of uh, piqued your interest in acting yeah. versus stand-up comedy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he's a genius. Um, uh, yeah. You know, that's the mentor. That is the mentor who says you've got something in there that's and with each person he could see the essence he said you must bring that essence and uh, that's not stuff you're brought up with you're supposed to fit into society you're supposed to do this or act this way or be this way or, you know uh, 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 do you have the courage to be just the opposite of that but maybe a lot of the um, interest in deconstruction came from studying with him well, he really, you know, he worked on every script of It's Gary Shandling Show, which was not necessarily a deep show, but we worked on deeper themes as an actor in it. I was playing much different things than was in the script. 
and every week we'd work. So he'd have this talk with me every week, and he would deconstruct what's happening there and how that applies to your personal life and what are you bringing personally when you're saying that line. You're not really saying, we can jump to Sanders, which he also helped me with the first two years. You're not really saying to Hank, uh, you're an idiot. You're saying you love him. <laughs> you're desperately trying to tell him you love him. You idiots. <laughs> so it doesn't come out like you idiot, like a, like a mean guy saying you idiot. If there is something else going on there, because I'm trying to get him to understand that I love him. Let's say, that's Roy London. So b before we get to it's Gary Shandling show, let's just touch a little bit on the Gary Shandling show 25th anniversary special. Um, wh why did you choose that specific format? You know, uh, uh, I had done one special for Showtime, and they said come in. And uh, pitch another one. So we're getting back to like the Sanford and Son style of what, 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 what uh, patterns replicated themselves in my life. And, and it was pitching. And uh, honestly, I had all these ideas for specials that I don't remember now. And I was in the bathroom in the, in the building where Showtime was. And I thought... Uh, why not do an artificial 25th anniversary special? And I think that would have been before anybody uh, I think Letterman has played with time and gone back and I don't think it was um, from that at all or I'd be happy to say I was influenced by that. It just struck me and I see in hindsight how these pieces of the puzzle fit together because there's a guy who's pretending like he hosted a talk show for 25 years. And I thought, I know I can pull that off and make it look real. And then it would be fun to write really funny sketches about things that failed as you look at the highlights. I don't know. It just happened. I mean, the idea just came out of the blue in the bathroom. Uh, or not very many good ideas come. In many ways, it was sort of a parody of the Tonight Show's, you know, anniversary specials, and yet you got Carson to do a cameo. Do yeah. you have any memories of, of that, of filming uh, that with him? Or? Uh, it, it's a... Uh, um, uh, you know, I don't look back enough. Uh, you would think I... That's all I do. I think that's what people think is all I do, <laughs> is sit around and look back. So you're making me think about it for really the first time in a week. Well, no. if you watch it now, I, I watched it a few weeks ago. You it's gotta, somewhat pointed, I think. You got to remember uh, that Johnny just wouldn't, never did anybody else's anything. So the fact that he said, I'll do something, meant uh, I like this guy. It meant he respected the, the talent. I, I mean... Uh, I could barely fit that together. I mean, if I thought about it too much, I would, it wouldn't be what I do. Uh, but I mean, I, I was gigantically grateful because he didn't, he didn't do it. It, make, it, really, it really means something to me. I think I tend to do things that actually mean something to me, which becomes uh, both limiting and then limiting. So just before It's Gary Shandling's show, uh, Joan Rivers left the, the, uh, her spot as permanent guest host um, on The Tonight Show. Yeah. Um, is that something you were interested in going after at all? 
Well, I'd host it tonight, so maybe, uh, I just don't even know, 15 times or something, probably, but, uh, and a week at a time. Right. And I was exhausted after every one of those weeks. And then, like the engineering class, like the Sanford and Son scripts, I went, do I want to do this the rest of my life? Uh, which is, by the way, a great job and the guys who can do it every night are have a gift uh, uh, I thought I would get bored eventually because I wouldn't be able to explore my acting and my writing probably some fear of success but uh, you know I would break it down to uh, you know 30, 30, 30, and whatever that last 10% is, you can, you can call it out. So uh, I was asked to alternate with Jay Leno to be the guest host uh, on Monday nights or whatever it was, but I had already started at Scary Shandling's show. So I ran the show, so I couldn't run the show, write the scripts, rehearse, and then on Monday night, go in, I'm not that guy who could then go and give 100% on The Tonight Show, let alone if I was going to do it every Monday night or every other Monday night. And I had to call Johnny on the phone and say, I can't do it. And he had just gone through the Joan Rivers thing where she didn't call him to say, uh, I'm leaving to do my own show. So when I called Johnny, I said, it's Gary Shandling, Johnny, I have to, I can't, I can't host the show. And he said, here we go again. And he was totally joking and... Uh, you know, I, I, I don't think of these things. It's, it's um, uh, I, I don't, I don't, in, in, yeah, they're terrific moments in their own uh, way, for sure. So obviously, if, if you don't think about them necessarily, you have no regrets about not doing that or not taking no. the Letterman spot when he left for CBS? Or? I think I don't think about them because there's so many regrets I would be devastated. <laughs> <laughs> I think I made a mistake every beat. <laughs> well, let's 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 get on to it's Gary Shandling's show. What was sure. it about? I was about not make doing another big mistake, just one mistake after the other. <laughs> That's what it's going to say on the on the tombstone. Another mistake. Uh, which show did you ask about? It's Gary Shandling's show. Well, I I just couldn't do. NBC was very interested in me doing a sitcom, so I went in NBC and I said I'd like to do a sitcom where I play a comedian and I have a platonic girlfriend and it's just about my life. And um, they said well, no one's going to watch that. <laughs> you have to be a comedian. And I said, well, I'm not going to refer to it like in an inside way. It's just that I'll be relating to people in life, and uh, that's what I do for a living. It's not going to be about uh, me consumed with the which club I'm working or anything. And they said, no, could you be a hardware salesman? I remember this really well. And I said, I want to talk to the camera. And they said, no, 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 no. You can't talk to the camera. Can you talk to a dog? And then it brought up back all my memories of writing sitcoms, which I'd already done. So I didn't need to write another sitcom. So Showtime said, well, you can do anything you want. We'll, we'd give you a series for anything you want. And no one knew what Showtime was. No one knew what cable was. But I heard uh, the phrase, you can do whatever you want. 
And that's what I jump on. So women should know that if they want to have a relationship with me, that's the key phrase. So NBC sort <laughs> of I'll did give you them a back, favor. I, and I will do them well. By, <laughs> I, I will do well by them. <laughs> they don't need to worry. I'm a tougher critic than anybody. It, that's it was, what's hilarious. It was good that you. I didn't never know. thought about this till now. <laughs> that's what's hilarious is that they're they're they they think they want something just the way they want it when in reality. Uh, I'll give them exactly what they want if they just stay relatively clear, because I'm the kind of guy that wants to do the, his best. So Showtime kept. Will you his... tell that to them for me? Uh, it'll be on tape. They okay, can see good. it on uh, good. on the internet. Oh, good. This should be, and then we'll cut it into <laughs> other things. <laughs> so uh, did did Showtime? Isn't that a good observation, Bruce? I think so. Yeah. Okay. I like that. That's my buddy Bruce. That's one of my best friends, who's really one of my very best friends, who happens to have done my makeup today. And you look great. Well, we should thank uh, Bruce. Thanks, Bruce. And uh, that's actually, then that's the guy who does my hair calling me. <laughs> That'll stop bringing in a second. There it goes. That message says, uh, I don't know where I am. That's what the message says. I used to, my favorite message, phone message I had, and these are all becoming obsolete as people have different kinds of answering devices, of course. Uh, I got my parents to make one when they were visiting that said, my dad said, this is Gary's dad, and my mom said, and this is Gary's mother, and we both love him very, very much. <laughs> Leave him a message and he'll call you back. Something like that. It's good to have that validation on your uh, answering machine. Yeah, that's the last time I had my parents on any project. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, let's let's talk a little bit about Showtime. So they allowed you to come on and basically do whatever you wanted, and they never interfered. That's right. Uh, and I am my own toughest critic. I remember getting a TV Critics Award, uh, and my opening was... Uh, no one hates me more than I do. So, you know, ease up. Uh, <clears throat> right. I am a very tough critic on myself. So I wasn't about to do something, well, I tried my absolute hardest not to do something cliche and bad and something new and different that would be, that they wanted for cable. So those two met at the right time. Same with Larry Sanders, which we'll get to. So uh, so-called cable television uh, allowed me the opening, to, uh, the freedom to, to do what I want, and I was lucky that they trusted, because I'd done two specials for them. And, you know, they'd talk to me as we are. Uh, uh, I can look you in the eye and say, I'm going to do the best I can, and I have a vision, and then we'll go from there. And I'm very open to notes and stuff like that. Uh, sometimes they need to be reinterpreted. Mm -hmm. uh, but I know how to do that from experience. I'm very experienced. I was a very experienced writer. By the time I got to these shows, all my shows, I was the most experienced writer in the sta on the staff. Right. It's a very unique position. How, how close was uh, the Gary Shandling in that show to the person that you were yeah. at that time? Uh, I think they're all, uh, I, I, I think it's an exaggeration. I mean, 
I was at the South by Southwest uh, Festival in Austin, and uh, uh, they showed each show and said, and, and I took questions, and someone said, which which is closer to who, who you are, Larry Sanders, Gary Shandling? And, and I said, they're both uh, stretches of a guy that's uh, <clears throat> not exactly the guy you're seeing in front of you talking now. And I guess that would be the best way to think of it, is look at me now and look at the, either of those shows, it's just not exactly this. Variations on a theme. Sure, I mean, I'm playing different uh, emotional lives, and I'm, I mean, that show was just balls out funny. I don't think we ever tried to make any deep, meaningful uh, life point. Uh, the theme itself was the structure of the show, which was breaking the conventions. So, and breaking the fourth wall and talking yeah. to the studio audience and yeah oh and i mean there was some clever stuff we let the audience vote on where i should what i should do in the story so you know i i think it changed things because you know it was like bringing it all out on all the conventions out and saying here's how it works usually by this point you marry the housekeeper so she can stay in the country do you guys think i should do it because i am not so quick to get married and they would vote and, uh, you know, we had our tricks up our sleeve to go either way. I, I don't remember, you know, uh, a great integration of a, of a talk show sitcom kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, talk a little bit about the theme song. Uh, that theme song, this is the theme to Gary's show. This is the um, theme to Gary. <clears throat> I remember, I, I mean, really, I have the, the complete... Uh, point of view and concept of what that show was from the ground floor up, what it represents, what it is, what it is about. So when it came to the theme song, I knew because I didn't, I never do a project unless I know what the heart of it is about. So then it's easy. Once you know the heart of it, you go with the theme song. And I remember because I can't sing or anything, I, I said, no, the theme song has to be something like, this is the theme to the show, this is the theme to the show, this is the theme, this is the theme, this is the theme, to, this is the opening theme to the show. And I, I didn't even know more, I didn't even want to know more than that. I said, right. do you, you follow me? And Alan Zweibel jumped right on that. And uh, I think he wrote 90% of those words, we wrote some together, uh, and he, he took that lead and just went with it. And uh, then we had two different guys come in to sing it, and one was goofier than the other, and we played it for somebody. And they said, well, you can't use that one because it's so goofy. And that's all we needed to hear. <laughs> <laughs> so you, uh, you kind of you know, had the theme song to this show that was a deconstruction of sitcoms, just have it be a deconstruction of theme songs. Yes. Yeah, once you start to deconstruct... You might as well go all the sure. way. Sure. All right, we're going to take a break to change the tape. Okay, good.